The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Malachi. That's the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2. The reason that we're doing Malachi in Sunday school this morning is because I had somewhat misjudged where we would be for Christmas Eve, and I thought a sermon on God-hating divorce would not be the most appropriate Christmas Eve sermon, and so we wanted to get to a messianic passage in Malachi, and in order to do that, we need to take some time in Sunday school. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 10 Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously against his brother, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary, literally the holy thing of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off Cut him off from the tents of Jacob, everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, and with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what does that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says Yahweh, God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with violence, says Yahweh of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Uh, Last Sunday night as we were looking at the book of Malachi we saw that God was bringing a strong rebuke and correction to the priests in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 2 and verse 9. We move from God's correction and rebuke to the priests now to a correction and rebuke to the people of God in general. And in verses 10 through 12, we have covenant faithlessness and mixed marriages. In verse 10, God begins to address the people... And he addresses them as, and this is the best way to describe them, as walking contradictions. The prophet himself is the one speaking in verse 10. When he says, do we not all have one father? And when he says we, he's not talking about the human race in general. He's talking about the covenant nation in particular. And Malachi asks the question, do we not all have one father? And it is probably a reference to God. I say that because of chapter 1 and verse 6 where God says, Does not a father uh, receive honor? If I'm a father, then why don't you honor me? And then also throughout uh, the Old Testament, God identifies himself as the father of the covenant nation. Exodus 4.22, Israel is identified as God's firstborn, thus he is their father. Uh, Through the prophets, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, God identifies himself as the father of his covenant people. And so Malachi says, don't we all have one father? In other words, is not our 
uh, the God, uh, the Father of our covenant nation. And then he asks, has not one God created us? The concept of fatherhood and creating, uh, creator are, are welded together in the Old Testament. The God who made is the God who is the Father, and he is the creator of his people. And so, for instance, we sing it sometimes, Psalm 95 Um, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for we are his people, the sheep of his hands. And so the idea is, is that the father and God of Israel was none other than Yahweh himself. He was in special relationship with them. And because of that special relationship as father and as God, they were to live a certain way. And so the prophet says, Don't we have one Father? Don't we have one God who has created us? And if that's the case, then the next question, why do we deal treacherously, each one with his brother, and profane the covenant? In other words, if we're going to confess that our Father is God, and if we're going to confess that he has made us, if we're going to confess that we're in special relationship with him, then why in the world do we live in a way that is an absolute contradiction and totally inconsistent with the way that he has called us to live? He identifies two things, and they're general, but they are very powerful. Deal treacherously with our brothers. This particular word, treachery, it's a a very good translation of the word. The the word treachery for us in English does have a very strong note to it. The idea of willful betrayal. A person who deals treacherously is a person who is a traitor. He's a person who is disloyal. And uh, virtually in in almost every culture, the concept of, of treachery, disloyalty, being a traitor is seen to be one of the worst, one of the most criminal of all acts and behaviors. And so why do we treacherously deal with our brothers and why do we profane the covenant of our fathers? When the idea of profane comes up, the idea is to treat it as common, as not special. Now, that doesn't sound very strong to us, but in, in, in ancient Israel, and biblically speaking, you had two categories. You had that which was sacred and that which was common. That which was common is that which was ordinary. That which was sacred needed to be treated as holy. And one of the great offenses in, in the Old Covenant was to take that which was holy and should have been treated as sacred and actually treating it as common. And so here is the covenant, which was to be sacred. It was to be held in esteem. It was to be loved, embraced, and treated as holy. And yet it was being treated commonly. Thus it was being profaned. And so the general indictment in verse 10 basically goes something like this. In light of our covenant solidarity and in light of our covenant blessings as the people of God, in light of our common creator, in light of our father God, in light of the covenantal bonds that we have with him and the covenantal bonds that we have with each other, why are we doing these things? In other words, the prophet is putting his finger on one of the most, one of the most um, darkest blots that can occur among God's people, and that is to have walking contradictions, people who say one thing and live in a way that is completely different. 
There is a huge disparity, Malachi says, between what we say we are and what we do. Then he gets specific, verse 11. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now the prophet gets specific. The treachery, the disloyalty to the covenant and to God is an absolute abomination. And again, that, that word abomination, much like the word treachery, should be understood as a weighty word, a strong word. When you hear the word abomination, think something that God loathes, something that God despises. Here is what they've done. They have defied or profaned the holy thing. That's all the text says, actually, the holy thing which Yahweh loves. Now, many of the commentators make suggestions. Many of the translations will say the sanctuary, because sometimes the sanctuary as the holy place was identified as the holy thing. But the holy thing could also be a reference to the covenant, or it could also be a reference actually to the people. All three, covenant, sanctuary, and people, are all identified as holy things in the Old Testament. Whatever it is, it is identified as that which God loves, that which has God's affection. And so the indictment is is that the people are profaning or defiling something that is holy that God loves. In context, it may well be not the covenant in general, but the marriage covenant in particular. I say that because of the next statement. They have married the daughter of a foreign god. When Malachi makes that statement, they've married the daughter of a foreign god. Notice the the emphasis here is not an interracial problem. It is an interfaith problem. That's the problem. In, 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 in ancient Israel, the idea of not marrying outside of the covenant people was not primarily a racial issue. It was primarily a faith issue. And so here, as the prophet begins to speak, he says, you've married the daughter of a foreign god. Why is, it, why is the wife or the woman depicted as the daughter of a foreign god? Because it is a woman who is devoted to her gods. Of course, Solomon had been guilty of this, marrying daughters of foreign gods. The idea is that these weren't just daughters of Canaanites or daughters of Hittites or Amalekites. These were daughters of a foreign god. These were daughters. These were women who were absolutely devoted to the gods of their fathers. And therefore, the people of God are intermarrying. And and remember, from, from a biblical perspective, marrying outside the faith leads to moral, theological, and spiritual defection. The problem in view here was not mixed marriage in the sense of mixed races. The problem in view was somebody who was supposed to be a devoted worshiper of Yahweh, the God of Israel, marrying somebody who was a devoted follower of another God. And biblically speaking, that is always a disaster. Always a disaster. Why? Because it will lead inevitably to moral, theological, and spiritual decline. 
This idea that love conquers all is ridiculous. If, if, if you're a young person here this morning and you think, let's say you're really in love with, with somebody who's outside of the Christian faith and, and there is some level of devotion and you think you're gonna, your, your love is so strong for each other that it's just all going to work out in the end and, 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 and you think somehow you're going to actually end up winning them, you're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. And so here's the people of God and what are they doing? They're joining themselves to people who love other gods. Eugene Merrill puts it like this. It's an abomination. Why? Because marriage to a pagan spouse is tantamount to embracing a pagan god. Verse 12, God goes on, or the prophet goes on. He says, As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. Verse 12 basically says that there's going to be a covenant curse for this kind of treachery. If you're going to join yourself to the daughters of foreign gods, then God says you're going to be cut off. And that is Old Testament terminology for excommunication from the covenant people and from covenant privileges. The idea of being cut off in the Old Testament could have the concept of, at times, capital punishment. To be cut off from the people and cut off from the land could actually mean that you were guilty of capital offense under the Old Covenant and were cut off by death. Or it could mean cut off in the sense of exiled from the covenant land. And to be exiled from the covenant land meant exiled exiled from the covenant people and ultimately exiled from all of the covenant privileges of worshiping the true God. And so God takes it so seriously that he basically says, I'm going to excommunicate those who actually would so defy and defile my covenant by marrying, by joining themselves together to those who worship and love foreign gods. I take that so seriously that I'm going to cut them off. And and notice it says, everyone who awakes and answers. That's what the New American Standard says. I think it's King James, interestingly, puts it, the master and the scholar. The NIV, in true consistency to itself, says, whoever he may be. When Malachi says he'll be cut off, he who answers, or he who awakes and he who answers, is no doubt an idiom for every last man. And the idea behind it may be, you can't be very dogmatic, but it may be the idea that in any given settlement in Israel, you had watchmen at the farthest parameters of of the settlement. And one would call to the other. And so the idea would be, another, another biblical imagery would be from Dan to Beersheba. From him who awakes to he who answers, to the one who calls out from this end of the settlement to the one who answers on that end of the settlement even those who are still worshiping the Lord. In other words, the people of God were living one way. They were marrying foreign uh, women who were um, devoted to foreign gods. God says, I'm going to cut them off, even those who continue to still worship Yahweh. And and, and you can start to see the hypocrisy that is running through the people of God. I'm going to take for myself a foreign wife, and there may have been some reasons for that, by the way, that we'll look at in a minute. I'm going to take for myself a foreign wife who worships a foreign god, but yet I'm still going to continue to do the stuff that I'm going to do. This is is the blindness of hypocrisy. 
I can defy the command of God in this area of my life, but as long as I continue to do some external things, I'll be okay. And God says, no, you won't. You'll be cut off too. That brings us to verse 13. This is another thing that you do. There's another indictment. You cover the altar of the Lord, Yahweh, with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. One of my favorite movies is Tombstone. And um, one of my favorite characters in the movie is Doc Holliday. And uh, at the end of the movie, uh, Doc, of course, had been deputized before the uh, shootout at the OK Corral. And he has a, a, a U.S. Marshal's badge. And he's about to get into a gunfight taking Wyatt's place against um, Johnny Ringo. Okay? It's a true story. Quit laughing. And... Um, as he, as, as he is about to get into this gunfight and basically kill this person, he takes the badge off and he says, my hypocrisy can only go so far. And he tosses the badge. My hypocrisy can only go so far. The people of God in verse 13 have no limits to their hypocrisy. There is no sense of my hypocrisy can only go so far. In fact, their hypocrisy has no limitation whatsoever. And it is absolutely blatant. Here they are. They're marrying against God's revealed will. God says, don't do this. And they are blatantly doing this. We're going to find out actually that they were also divorcing their wives. They are doing their own will. They're doing their own thing. They're following their own lusts. And then they act pious and contrite when they go into the house of God. They lay across the altar. They cover the altar with their tears, crying and moaning in some incredible display of, uh, of contrition. And God is far from them. God doesn't answer their prayers. He doesn't receive their offering. And he does not, he he says, I'm so far away from you right now because of what you're doing. And here they are crying and moaning. Why? Why, God? And yet that very picture oftentimes is a reflection of the way that we really are. We expect God to do things for us. We expect God to bless us. We expect God to make sure certain things don't happen to us. And yet we're self-willed and we do our own thing. And then when things don't go our way, we throw up our hands. We we cry. We mourn. We weep. We go, what's wrong? What's wrong, God? Don't you know that I love you? Don't you know that I'm worshiping you the way that I'm supposed to worship you? Don't you see our tears? Don't you give heed to the offerings that we're bringing? I mean, I I know it's a three-legged lamb with one eye. But still, it meant something to me. You don't answer our prayers. What have we done? Oh, yeah. The foreign wife thing. Doesn't God just want me to be happy? Doesn't God just want me to be happy? That is one of the foremost justifications that I hear 
to violate the revealed will of God. God wants me to be happy. I agree God wants you to be happy. But he wants you to be happy by being holy. And so here are the people, and they cry, and they mourn, and they weep. God doesn't hear us. God doesn't accept our offerings. What's wrong? God is not being fair. And then God says, you say, for what reason? You want to know why I don't accept your offerings? You want to know why I don't hear your prayers? You want to know why I don't bless you? Notice verse 14, it's powerful. Because Yahweh has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. The way that God begins to answer this is to say, okay, you who are covering my altar with your tears, you who are moaning and, and groaning and crying that I'm far away, and you say, why are you doing this? You want to know why? Because I was a witness. I stood right there in the midst of the assembly, and I heard your vows, and I saw the covenant. I am a witness to the covenant that you've made. I know. This is, this is one of the things that is, that is always weighty whenever we do a wedding. We'll have, and it doesn't matter if it's five people who are witnesses or 500 people who are witnesses, the bride and the groom come in together, and you know what they do? They exchange vows. And you know what I'm always careful to say? That you're making these vows today. You're exchanging these vows with an oath before God and these people. These people are witnesses. They're watching. They're listening. By the way, your responsibility in a wedding is to actually hold the parties responsible to their covenantal vows. If you've heard him, you're a witness. God says, I was there. I'm a witness. I'm a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Now, this expression, the wife of your youth, reference to the woman that he married when he was young, when he was full of love and devotion and ambition, The wife of his youth is the wife who has given him his children, the one who had his affections, the one who had lived with him through the toughest parts of life, the one who helped put him through school. When God says the wife of your youth, what he wants to register in the mind of the offender is you you need to recall what you said. You need to recall what you had. You need to recall what you were. You need to recall what you wanted. And now she's scorned. Now she's held in contempt. Now she is held at arm's length. Now she's put out. And then notice the next way that God describes the wife. Your companion and wife By covenant. Your companion. Peter's language, co-heir of the grace of life. 
God never ever intended for there to be the, um, the unbiblical male chauvinism of the rabbinic perspective that, that, that permeates the intertestamental period and the first century. The idea that the rabbis had was that women were second-class citizens. You can never find that in the Bible. The wife is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She is one. She, too, is made in the image and likeness of God. She is partner. She is companion. As Matthew Henry says, and I quote this in every single wedding, Matthew Henry wrote some 400 years ago that woman was taken from the rib of a man, from his side, not from his feet to be trampled upon by him, nor from his head to rule over him, but from his side to be near him, to be close to his heart, under his arm, to be protected by him. That's the picture. That's the picture. That's the biblical picture. Yes, there's such a thing as male headship. Yes, the husband is to be the head of the house, but he is a servant leader. And the wife and the husband are one flesh, co-equal heirs of the grace of life. And God says she is your companion and your wife by covenant. She's the wife that you've been bound together with as one by God. That's why we always say... What is about to happen here is that God is about to take two and make them into one. That's why we say that. Because in that covenant, that's what happens. And God says, you've dealt treacherously. You've, dealt tre- you've been disloyal. You've been heartless. Even though she is your companion. And your covenant partner. Now verse 15. In your notes it says godly people don't deal treacherously with their wife. Let me just tell you that verse 15 is exceptionally difficult. The New American Standard reads in a way that does not make a tremendous amount of sense. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Now that particular expression is translated in so many different ways. New International Version, Has not the Lord made them one in flesh and spirit? They are his, and why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. Revised Standard Version, Has not the one God made and sustained for us the spirit of life? I hope you're following along. You see how different this is. And what does he desire? Godly offspring. New Jerusalem Bible, Did he not create a single being having flesh and the breath of life? What does this single being seek? God-given offspring. The, the number of different translations um, are vast. And uh, I like the realism of Douglas Stewart, an Old Testament commentator. He says, because of the difficulty of the Hebrew wording of this verse, particularly the first half, it has been interpreted in a great many ways. Indeed, Vanderwuda wrote, Malachi 2.15 is one of the most difficult passages of the whole Old Testament... And it would actually be hopeless to record all of the attempts that have been made to explain the verse. Stuart goes on, he says, what are we to do? Most commentaries sort through the options, pick one, and then attempt to justify it. 
This is meritorious in its motive, but ultimately fruitless. My approach is somewhat different. I would advise the reader that since nobody really understands what the point of verse 15a is making, the worst thing that could be done would be to assume that it can be understood. And so, it's a notoriously difficult passage. And so, what do you do with a notoriously difficult passage? Well, you recognize it's notoriously difficult, and then you try to find out what in it can you understand. And here's what you can understand. The second part of verse 15. Take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. The first part may be very difficult, and it may just be... um, don't like the terminology, but it's the only thing that comes to my mind right now. A crapshoot as to which interpretation you pick. You don't know for sure which one it's going to be. But the second part of the verse is clear enough, right? Take heed to your spirit and don't deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. Now, verse 16 is, is God's declaration. And this is why he says what he says in verse 16. For I hate divorce says Yahweh, God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with violence, says Yahweh of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God actually says, I hate divorce. It's, it's not very um, common, at least it doesn't stand out in our minds as common, when God says he hates something. Proverbs 6, there are six things that the Lord hates, yea, seven which are an abomination to him. And every once in a while, God does say he hates something. But right here, he just says straightforwardly, without stuttering, I hate divorce. I detest it. I abhor it. Alan Ross makes this comment based on the strong language. He says, God is emotionally involved in the lives of his people. He hates it when they destroy their marriage because he knows the pain that will cause, that, that will cause and the effect that it will have on the faith, on their faith for the future. When God says he hates divorce, what he is saying is, I hate covenant breaking. I hate injustice. I hate self-will and self-government that is contrary to my will and to my government. I hate it when children are hurt. What does Jesus tell us in Matthew chapter 18 that it would be better to have a millstone hung around your neck and cast into the sea than to hurt or to cause one of these little ones to stumble. He hates the fracturing of a covenant community. He hates the fracturing of society. He hates the destruction of the family. The next line, he says he, he hates the covering of his garment with, with wrong. New American Standard is, 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 is too easy. The word wrong is the word violence. A number of commentators actually see the second part in direct connection with divorce, which actually makes sense contextually. The idea of covering his garments with violence is covering his garments with those things which attend the breakup of a marriage. Divorce, says Eugene Merrill, is always violent and always leaves its emotional and spiritual scars. And God says, I hate divorce. I hate divorce. Now, the Bible does give us two grounds for biblical divorce, but let me just say that even when there are biblical grounds, it is still safe to say God hates divorce. He hates the disintegration of a covenant which was made before his eyes. He hates the disintegration of a one flesh union. He hates it. He says at the end of verse 16, take heed to your spirit. Now just watch out. 
Watch out for your life, the Jerusalem Bible puts it. Watch out for your life. Take heed to your spirit. That is, make sure that you guard over your heart and listen to your conscience. Pay attention to the word. Why? Why right after this? I hate divorce. Those who cover their garments with violence, take heed to your spirit. Why? Because one of the most deceptive things in the world, one of the most deceptive things in the world, is a relationship with somebody of the opposite sex. It's one of the most deceptive things in all the world. Why? You know why. Because you're in love. And when you're in love, your judgment is clouded. Okay? (laughs) How many times? I mean, one of the most common things that, that, that we as elders see is a young person who has been devout and sincere in their faith they get into their late teens, their early 20s. They, they find somebody who is not a believer and you start to warn them and you start to warn them and you start to warn them and you start to try to listen, look at what the word says. And you know what? They can't see it. Why? Because they're in love. Being in, and by the way, understand that there is, there, there's a, a good part about being in love if you, if you do it God's way. There can be very deceptive things about being, quote, in love if it's outside of God's will. Being in love has led men and women to engage in sexual intimacy before they're in covenant union in marriage. Being in love has caused believers to want to marry an unbeliever. Being in love has caused one spouse to want to divorce another spouse so that they could marry somebody else. Understand that this is about as clouded as judgment gets. There is, it, it, you are actually hard-pressed to try to find a more self-deceptive element in which to live and breathe and move than being in love. Maybe the only thing that surpasses it, at least from from pastoral experience, is what drugs and alcohol can do to a person. But that's just a maybe. And so take heed to your spirit. this, This is the Pauline, don't be deceived. Watch over your heart. Watch over who you hang out with at the water cooler. Watch out who you're spending time with. Why? Because the heart is deceitful above all else, desperately wicked. How easy is it to get the heart entangled and then all of a sudden to be enmeshed in a situation that you know is wrong and yet you cannot emotionally extricate yourself from it because you're in love. It's a pretty potent passage, I think, don't you? Remember, the book of Malachi is calling us to repentance and to covenant faithfulness. That's what Malachi is calling us to. And he identifies true covenant fidelity and obedience to God in the following ways. One, only marry in the faith. Only marry in the Lord. 
when he forbids or says it's an abomination to marry those who are daughters of foreign gods, the, 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 the positive way to put that is only marry in the Lord. Understand that dating evangelism leads 99 times out of 100 to moral, spiritual apostasy. Only marry in the Lord. Young person, resolve it now. In your heart, I will only marry in the Lord. Now, I would, I would say that there are other considerations, but that's the most basic. That's the most basic. Only marry in the faith. If you don't, if you don't, you will join the long train of miserable, wrecked marriages and shattered faith. Oh, now you might, you might be the one in a hundred. But is it really worth a path of disobedience to God to try to take your chances? Only marry in the Lord. The second is be a God-honoring person, a faithful man or woman of God. That's what Malachi is calling us to, is to be a faithful person, be an honest person, be a person of integrity. And, and, and by the way, as that is the, the, the obvious implication, stop dealing treacherously with your brother. Quit profaning the covenant. Walk with God as father. Walk with God as creator. Walk in obedience to the God who made you, who loves you, who's entered into covenant with you. The, the, the clear implication is, listen, be a God-honoring person. Be a person who walks in integrity. Be a faithful man. Be a faithful woman. You know, that is probably one of the, one of the, the best commendations that anybody could give you. He's faithful. She's faithful. By the way, being a God-honoring faithful person will also make you the best possible spouse you can be. You want to be the best spouse you can be? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You want to be the best spouse that you can be? Be a God-honoring person who is faithful above everything else to his God. I told Ariel when we were first married, watch my walk. Watch my walk with Christ. And as long as you see me walking with Christ, you have no need to worry. But if you see my walk not matching up with my talk, get my attention. The best spouses are those who are faithful to Christ. Third, be a faithful husband or wife and honor the marriage covenant and love your covenant companion. Love your covenant companion. Just stop and think about the words that are used. Wife of your youth, companion, 
Wife by covenant. The, the, um, J. Adams says marriage is a covenant of companionship. And, and, and what Malachi is, is motivating us towards, compelling us towards, is to love your husband, love your wife. Husbands, don't covet a newer model. Don't covet a newer model. If, 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 if all you are interested in is what you can see with your eyes. If all you're interested in is what tantalizes your eyes. No matter how beautiful your wife is, no matter how thin she is, no matter how shapely she is. There will come a day when gravity will take effect. There will come a day when Miss Clairol will become your wife's secret best friend. There will come a day in which the marks of bearing your precious children will be unerasable. And if the only thing that you've cared about is a firm body and good looks, you will start looking for something else. Love the wife of your youth. She is your covenant companion. And when you have that kind of love... Her hair could fall out. You could care less. When you have that kind of love, the wrinkles may set in, but you could care less. When you have that kind of love and you know the kind of husband you've been, you know that you're the one that's given her those gray hairs. Sorry. (laughs) Special word for husbands. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter 3, 7, very relevant to Malachi 2. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, literally according to knowledge, as with someone weaker, as the weaker vessel, since she is a woman. And show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life, so that your prayers will not be hindered. The very thing that we saw in the book of Malachi, people who were divorcing their wives, getting the foreign wives of foreign gods, and then going and covering the altar with their tears and saying, God, what's wrong? Why aren't you listening to me? That principle is still in effect. And one of the things, husbands, that will affect our relationship with the Lord more than anything else is living with our wives in an ununderstanding way or a misunderstanding way, or to live with our wives and to expect too much from her and to expect her to act like a man. 
I thank God for competent wives and I thank God for, for wives who, who, who get things done. And I thank God for wives that, that, that are task oriented and know how to run a household. And all of those things are blessings. But Peter says you need to live with your wife according to knowledge as with a weaker vessel. Understand her weaknesses. Understand what it means for her to be a woman. And this is not a, a put down on being a woman. It is simply recognizing the, the inherent differences between men and women. And, and Peter says, listen, live with your wife according to that understanding. Because if you don't, if you're surly with her, if you're hard on her, If you mistreat her, your prayers, just as in Malachi's day, will be hindered. There are times where if I've been too hard or too short or too impatient, I leave the house and I come here and I sit down at my desk I open my Bible, and I try to get from verse 9 to verse 10. There's something right inside of my heart that says, you knucklehead. Call her. I don't want to call her. It was her fault. Verse 11, call her. Don't want to call her. It was her fault. Verse 12, what have I read? What am I doing? I know I'll pray. Oh, Lord, heavens are brass. Live with your wife according to knowledge so that your prayers are not hindered. Next, a special word for divorced people. Let me just tell you, contrary to what some sentiment is among evangelicals, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Divorce is forgivable. It doesn't mean God hates it less, but it does mean that God forgives, God washes, God cleanses. And so if you are divorced, don't sit there and beat yourself black and blue emotionally over over all of your failings. Admit those, confess those to God, confess the divorce as sin, and then do what? Well, seek forgiveness and then seek to be the best God-honoring, spouse-loving person that you can be now. Honor God in the marriage that you have now. Acknowledge the sin of the past, but try to be the best husband or best wife that you can be now. Live according to the dictates of Scripture now. But divorce is not unforgivable. Finally, a special word to unmarried people. I've already hammered on this, but I thought I would do it one more time before we close. Only marry in the Lord, please. Only marry in the Lord. If you come to me and ask me to do your marriage, do your wedding, 
And that man, young man, or that young woman is not in Christ, I will tell you no. Period. I will not perform a wedding between a believer and an unbeliever. I also would have grave doubts about doing a wedding between a Calvinist and an Arminian, but that's a different subject. Don't do, don't do dating evangelism. It doesn't work. And you say, well, I know there are cases where it works. You, you can't prove the rule by pointing to the exceptions. And you know what? We get so desperate. That's what we want to do. We want to prove the rule by pointing to the exceptions. I don't need to go to seminary. Spurgeon didn't go to seminary. Well, what makes you think you're Spurgeon? We try to prove the rule by pointing out all the exceptions. And the fact is, is that exceptions are just that. They're exceptions. Don't start to get involved with somebody who's not in the Lord. It, is an, it will be an absolute disaster. But more than that, it is, it, is, it is a self-willed defiance against God's revealed will. And if you love Christ, the most important thing in your life should be to walk in the revealed will of your Father. Covenant keeping, covenant faithfulness must be the fabric that keeps our families and our churches together. It's what must keep our marriages together. And it's such faithfulness that honors God and that God honors. And so may God be honored in this place, in our faithfulness to each other, to our spouses, And may we walk in integrity before our Father and our Creator. Let's pray. Father, you alone are a great God. You are powerful and you are kind. You are awesome and you are merciful. And Father, we pray that we would take this word to heart. We pray that we would take heed to our spirit. We pray that we would hide your word in our heart and walk according to it. And Father, we pray this morning, especially for those who may have wounded consciences because of a past failed marriage. Father, we pray that you would freshly apply the soothing power of Jesus' blood to their sin. Lord, remind them that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, we also pray for those who are not married. Lord, may they settle it today to marry according to your word within the scope of your guidelines. And Father, may those of us who are married, Lord, may we, may we treat our spouses in a way that is not treachery, but is consistent with covenant love. And so, Father, we now ask that you would prepare our hearts for the hour to come, that we may worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' precious name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.